Today's podcast, I think, is a really important conversation. It is a conversation about cancer. And before you decide that you don't feel like listening to a conversation about cancer, please reflect on the fact that you or someone close to you will almost certainly get it. This is just a virtual guarantee. My father died of cancer. I've had friends die of cancer. Someone in my own family has cancer now. This is just all around you, whoever you are. And today's guest is one of the great authorities on the topic. You've heard him before on the podcast, but today I'll be speaking with Siddhartha Mukherjee about the topic with which he is most closely associated. Siddhartha is a cancer physician and researcher. He is an assistant professor of medicine at Columbia University and a staff cancer physician at Columbia NYU Presbyterian Hospital. He's a former Rhodes Scholar. He graduated from Stanford and Oxford, where he received a PhD studying cancer-causing viruses, and from Harvard Medical School. And his laboratory focuses on discovering new cancer drugs using various biological methods. He's published everywhere you would expect, but he's also a regular writer for The New Yorker. And he has won the Pulitzer Prize for his book, The Emperor of All Maladies, A Biography of Cancer. And our conversation ranges widely from his experience as an oncologist, asking many questions from both a patient and doctor-centered point of view, how to think about a cancer diagnosis, the biology of cancer, how the mapping of the human genome has changed our understanding of cancer and, and the possibilities of treatment, how cancer spreads. We talk about whether we're always getting cancer and simply fighting it. We talk about the difference between remission and cure. We talk about how much of cancer is due to environmental causes. There's a lot here, and it was great to steal another hour of Siddhartha's time. So, without further delay, I bring you Siddhartha Mukherjee. I am here with Siddhartha Mukherjee. Siddhartha, thanks for coming back on the podcast. My pleasure. Thank you. So the last time around, we spoke about your more recent book, The Gene, which was fascinating and also led us a little further afield than at least you realized we would go. I, I had just come fresh off my controversial podcast with Charles Murray and then um, led us into a discussion about the genetics of intelligence or suspicions of such and exhausted both of our interest, if not our patience, on that topic. I won't do that again this time around, because we're talking today about your book for which you are certainly best known and for which you won the Pulitzer Prize, The Emperor of All Maladies, A Biography of Cancer. And you are a, an oncologist and spend a considerable amount of your time working with patients and also doing research into the biology of cancer. So... I'm really looking forward to having this conversation because we only had about 10 minutes last time around to touch on this all-too-important topic. First, let's, before we get into the biology of cancer and treatment, what's your story here in terms of how you got into becoming an oncologist? People tend not to think about how the, the different medical specialties dictate a very different experience from the, the, the side of the doctor. I, mean, I can imagine that being an ER doc is not at all the same as being a dermatologist. I mean, you don't get calls in the middle of the night when you're a dermatologist. You're, you're not constantly seeing people die. I would imagine you're, you're dealing as much with human vanity as with actual health concerns. First, well, what is the experience of being an, an oncologist? And Because it seems like it would be emotionally very challenging. And how did you decide to take this on yourself? So I came into cancer medicine a little bit in reverse. I, in the 90s, um, I was at Oxford. I was training as an immunologist. My graduate work is in immunology. I was interested in vaccines. You know, this is a time when the immunology revolution was taking off. Um, and uh, it was researchers, uh, the, the biology community had just figured out sort of some of the most important things about how the immune system works, how it might uh, 
allow for enable vaccination and so forth. So I went to Oxford and I studied viruses. Um, I'm an, I was an immunologist and a virologist by training. The one particular virus that I got interested in is actually a, a, a major human pathogen called Epstein-Barr virus, um, EBV. And um, part of the reason that we still deal with it is that it's one of those strange viruses that lives in the human body but doesn't seem to cause overt disease. I'll come back to the word overt in a second. Um, but virtually all of us have, have Epstein-Barr virus. This is a virus that's evolved with us, with human, uh, the human species for tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of years. Um, and, you know, there maybe 70 to 80% of people are infected in some parts with EBV. And it seems our immune system doesn't seem to reject it. Uh, we never clear it during our lifetime. So the question I was interested in is why is it that we don't clear Epstein-Barr virus, whereas you know, if you have influenza, if you have the flu, you get the flu, your body clears the flu, and you don't have flu virus left in your body. What's the difference between these two things? Why is it the flu gets cleared but while EBV remains persistent? And I, I tried to solve it. I partly, you know, I helped partly solve that mystery. Um, but then it became obvious to me if you read the the epidemiology of EBV, it turns out that in fact this word it doesn't cause overt disease. But in fact, there's a, there's a long history of it being linked to various cancers, including lymphomas and other cancers. In fact, it is, um, the, the, the links between EBV and, and cancer are quite deep. And so I began to th became more interested in cancer, began to think more and more about cancer. Cancer genetics, why is it that, what genes in EBV allow it to do the things that it does? Why is it able to stay persistent in the human host? Um, and so I became interested in cancer. And as I became more and more interested in cancer, became more and more interested in going to, you know, thinking about cancer medically and then became an oncologist. So I sort of did my, I, I came into cancer through the world of science and immunology. And it's, uh, it's only interesting because immunology, as you might know, has suddenly come alive in the world of cancer again. The question you ask is, you know, what is it, what is it like to being, what is it like being an oncologist? Well, it's, it's, it's very unlike the examples you get. It's very unlike being in the emergency room um, because you, you, you need to, things change extremely quickly. The, the things that I knew were absolute certainties in 10 years ago, five years ago. So I think one of the things about being an oncologist is that you the amount of information and the and the the rapidity with with it with which it changes is striking things that i knew as absolute certainties 10 years ago are up in question now um uh, you know 10 years ago if someone told me that we would be manipulating the human immune system to reject cancers i would say ah chances of that being true are pretty minor um 10 years later um you know that's the new direction of cancer so that's one of the surprising things. You don't get up in the middle of the night uh, like a surgeon might, uh, or as often as a surgeon might, uh, but you stay up in, in the middle of the night because you're finding out new things that wouldn't be the case uh, 10 years ago. Do you work with children as well or only adults? I, I do all my work with adults, although um, you know, within the world of cancer, uh, leukemia is one area that I particularly am interested in. Um, it's a funny, it's a funny story, uh, uh, Sam. The leukemia for the for the longest time, blood cancers, led the charge in the science and treatment of cancer. And what we can we can explore why there's sort of deep reasons why. And then now the world of cancer is moving beyond leukemias and looking for you know how to how to take those lessons and learn them in in solid cancers like breast cancer and lung cancer. So, so I see both. I, I see all. I see, but mainly, I'm still interested in blood cancers. The, the history here again. I'm now focusing not so much on the disease, but on the the doctor patient experience. There really was this amazing stigma associated with cancer. I recall a story about my own grandmother, who I never met, who died before I was born, where she had metastatic melanoma. 
and was in the hospital really to die. But I believe it's true to say that she was never told her prognosis at all. In fact, she was lied to about what it was. I think she was told she had arthritis and would recover. I mean, it's just something so unthinkable at this moment. It used to be, I don't know how widespread this practice was, but I've heard from, from many other sources that it, that it was routine for doctors to lie to patients about their prospects, especially women patients, and this was sometimes in collaboration with their husbands. And there was, there was one point in your book where you painted a picture, a very, very flattering picture of, of one of the, the people you studied under, I believe it was Thomas Lynch, a lung cancer specialist, and you described him as a kind of virtuoso of telling people bad news. But there was a kind of, correct me if I'm wrong, but there seemed to be a kind of necessity of shading the truth even there. How do you think about this? What was the practice then, and, and, and what is the practice now in terms of delivering bad news in a context of real uncertainty? Because it seems to me that oncologists must, in many cases, take refuge in uncertainty, because even in the most dire circumstances, there are still these stories of the you know, the outliers, the, you know, the less than 5% cases where someone makes a recovery, even from some fairly dire stage four diagnosis. It's a complicated issue, as you point out, and it's an important question. Um, and I think the, the, um, the, the capacity to take refuge in uncertainty is, a, is, is an important philosophical question, actually. I mean, you know, to what extent are human beings allowed to take refuge under uncertainty? Uh, and, and to what extent does that become a kind of opium? opium? Um, so I think, I think oncologists have very individual styles around this. Um, but, but there's the one thing I think you learn um, in, in cancer is, uh, is that hope is, is negoti negotiable. Um, and that you navigate your way through a, a, an individual's um, individual's journey, your patient's journey through their cancer. I think the most important thing that we that I try to convey to patients, and I think the field has tried somewhat now, is to convey that uncertainty without without sort of washing it up and and cleansing it and sterilizing it. Um, and that's a tough question. That's a tough thing to con convey because, on one hand, there is the, the the hard statistics, but on the other hand, there there are the individual truths. Whether you lie within the 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 distribution of patients who are likely to die in five months, or whether you will be the one, your patient who happen will, will happen to be the one who who will survive that time. Um, I think that, that the most honest way of dealing with it is is a is is a, a kind of uh, is to imagine this as a process that on day one when you when I meet someone I can give them the bare statistics and then then I I try to to also describe uh, what the outliers look like who who is an outlier why I think they were outliers is it because of the location of the cancer they had. The genetics of the cancer, the genes that the cancer, the mutations? Is it because they happen to have a particularly successful surgical resection? Is it that they were the best responders to that particular chemotherapy? So I try to describe that. And I tell people honestly that I don't know where they will sit, but my but this but 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 the the, the curve, the, the 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 mean, the medians look like this. And then in time, the next time I meet them, I know a little bit more. Um, and so I'll, I'll modify uh, my understanding. I mean, if, if you wanted to have a formal name for it, this is Bayesian statistics. It's, it's a wise way of thinking about the world. When you take your priors and you modify your priors um, to make conclusions about uh, how these people, how individuals will behave um, given the circumstances. Um, I think, and I've written about it, I think Bayes' insight into the world, Thomas Bayes' insight into the world was very profound. Yeah. And medicine is still trying to deal with it. We're coming to terms with that idea. Again, in terms of your emotional experience as a physician, I remember at one point in the book, I, I think you were describing what it was like to be a resident at that point. I don't know how it's since changed, but you were talking about a kind of professionalization of your 
emotional range in the presence of these distraught families or these or patients who for whom you have to deliver uh, very scary news. And you were talking about that as a a kind of necessity, but also as a perhaps a a psychological or ethical error. I mean, you weren't you weren't you obviously weren't comfortable with this change that was coming over you. How you how this was becoming you had a routine way of distancing yourself from the the pain you know or, or just you know, kind of dampening down your 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 empathy so as not to be bowled over every time you had to talk to a a very sick patient how has that evolved for you and is there is there an optimal way of being in that role i don't know if there's an optimal way of being in that role and I, but i think that you know, the conflict that you're talking about is very important because the the the, the professionalization of empathy um, is is a, is a rather dire thing, as you can imagine. Um, it it creates um, it, it creates all sorts of uh, internal conflicts. I mean, you know, there are now classes um, of which which hope to professionalize medical empathy. There are good things about that. There is a kind of there is a kind of importance. To, to sensitivity training, if you want to call it, you know, it's an, it's an Orwellian word, sensitivity training uh, in medicine. But that said, I think, I think there's also a regret that people have that the spontaneity that you had when you were a resident, when I was a resident, when I was an intern, to be able to tell people sort of, you know, honest news about themselves is somehow being filtered. You feel as if there's a filter that's come into your life. Um, I, th- I think I, I personally try to resist the filter. Um, I try to maintain the honesty. I told you my method. My method is to think in, if you want to call it formally, a, a kind of Bayesian way um, about medicine. I think that that helps. It, it allows you to maintain a kind of personal honesty in the face of, so, so when someone says to me, you know, am I going to die in five months? You don't resort to the kind of, uh, you know, nonsense speak. Of um, you know of, of of a professionalized empathy training, in which you you know hold their hand and and pretend to be uh, aggrieved, um, you try to assess yourself what your own feelings about their impending death is. You try to understand. You try to help. Um, I think it's a I think it's a real struggle. Um, and and um, and I, and I and I know like like many disciplines. Uh, the 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 exaggeration um, can be can ultimately uh, the exaggeration of of false empathy is detected by patients very quickly and they shut themselves off. The last thing they want to hear is false empathy. Um, so 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 I, th- I think it's you're you're, you're pointing to a, an important struggle that's very much in inside the discipline. And they also probably don't want a physician who bursts into tears and begins sobbing on their shoulder when he delivers the news. So there's not... So you can't be, you can't be clear-eyed when your own eyes are clouded with tears. Uh, so I've written a little bit about this. I, I wrote a, a, an essay for The New Yorker on, um, on numbness, um, which is about this idea and about trying to connect um, life as a doctor and how it benumbs you. Um, what, the, the fastest response to um, to living as a doctor is to 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 shut it down to to, to become numb uh, to to all the to all the enormity of, of of the suffering, and I was um, there. There is something in uh, one, one of the connections I sought in that in that uh, piece was uh, was to Chekhov, who as a who was a doctor and a writer, and about his uh, his capacity to remain clear eyed about uh, about about the world. Without shutting off, the, the, without becoming numb to it, it's a pretty tough act. But I think I think we try. Yeah, well, it's it's just amazing to witness. I, mean, I also watched the documentary based on your book that, that Ken Burns produced. And again, given this is so far outside the range of my professional experience, I just was amazed at what oncologists have to go through as their patients go through the scariest moments in their lives, and especially when you're talking to the parents of children who have received a diagnosis of leukemia or some other cancer. It was just so 
lacerating for me as a viewer. And so, like, it, was, it was very difficult for me to watch until I just kind of surrendered to it. But basically, for me, it's just the continuous effort to stifle tears seeing people go through that experience. Right, but, and, and, but just, to, just to remind you and your readers uh, or your listeners uh, that, of course, it, it, the point that you're making is incredibly important, which is that y- y- you're do- you cannot, no one wants a sobbing doctor. And you want someone, you know, there is a fundamental, and I, and I, I suspect that I, I will raise some hackles as I say this, there's a fundamentally, the fundamental relationship between a patient and a doctor, even today, um, the power lies in one direction. The doctor knows that the patients are there to try to seek help. Um, that is not to say that that's a good thing. It is just to remind ourselves that there is a that that the that empathy can be helpful, and of course is a prerequisite for medicine. But false empathy and and trying to trying to trying to uh, trying to emulate um, the actual experience of the patient as a doctor is going to be necessarily flawed. You, you are not the person with cancer. It is the, it is, it is the person sitting in front of you uh, that, has the real, that has the real problem. Um, so, Actually, there, there's a good distinction. I don't know if you know the psychologist Paul Bloom at Yale. He's done a lot of work on empathy, and he's, he wrote a very controversial book entitled Against Empathy, where he differentiated what he calls cognitive empathy, just understanding what another person's experience is, and the more emotional contagion style of empathy, where you just find yourself crying when you see someone is sad. I think in this case, he would say that what we want are physicians who have a, a lot of cognitive empathy. They know what you are very likely to be going through, and they care to alleviate your suffering, but they're not being held hostage by their own emotional reaction to suffering vicariously through you or thinking about, you know, how would I feel if it, if it were my kids I was talking about and all of that. Absolutely. And, 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 you know, it comes down to, again, very, very important basic things is that, I mean, in the, in the laboratory, when we study cancer genetics or study cancer cell behavior, you're abstracting away so much from the experience of the illness. Uh, but it's important to remember the experience of uh, of the of the illness lived through the lives of your patients as well. It's what sort of motivates a, motivates a laboratory life, at least for me. So I, I think it's very important. I think and, and the distinction. I've certainly read this distinction between between the cognition of empathy, the the cogitation of empathy, and the enactment of it. Um, and um, and I, I, I would agree that I think that's a, that's an important distinction. And I think it's a struggle. It's not simple. Uh, I don't think, you know, I, I would be lying if I said to you that one doesn't bleed into the other quite quickly. And this, I think, goes back to the idea across the board um, that um, in, a, in a behavioral sense, um, you can teach um, being a doctor. But, that, but of course, that's just merely in a behavioral sense. What does it mean to behave? What words do you say? Uh, but the but patients very quickly pick up the idea that you're saying them without believing them. So believing it, believing inside what it means to have, if you want to call it cognitive empathy, is 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 a psychological realm which is actually quite quite deep and understudied. Actually, we we, we don't fully understand it. Is there anything that you know from the side of being an oncologist that you think cancer patients or their their family members? should know but but often don't in terms of the experience of of receiving a diagnosis and and going through treatment and talking to their doctors i mean is, is there any question you would ask your doctor or anything you would do differently given how much you know about what it's like to be an oncologist and and what the the full course of treatment often is and i mean just what what does your experience give you as a Perspective cancer patient that most people don't have. Well, one of the things I, I'm thinking of um, um, of an important essay which I often encourage um, patients to read by Stephen Gould, called "The Median Is Not the Message," in which um, the backstory is that Stephen Stephen Jay Gould um, was diagnosed with a very unusual cancer of abdominal mesothelioma. Um, 
And if you read the statistics, uh, Gould's uh, prognosis was extremely grim. It was very, very sobering. And the, the question that Gould asked himself in this essay, and I encourage people to read it, is if you take, if you take the curve of survivorship, so you know, if you just plot as a, you can plot the number of patients who are alive five months, seven months, 12 months, 20 months after the diagnosis, It'll look like a, it might look like a Gaussian curve, or it might look any, it might look like any kind of curve. The question you want to ask yourself is, where are you located in that curve? Are you on the, you know, are you on the side of the kind of person who is going to rapidly succumb to this cancer? Are you likely to survive the uh, the batterings of surgery, radiation, and chemotherapy? If you do, what are the chances that you will survive this with a meaningful life, et cetera, et cetera? So he tried to place himself, and once he had placed himself in that curve, he was able to make decisions about treatment more more accurately. So, so if I were to become a patient, and I will, I mean, statistically speaking, you and I will both likely have cancer. Um, you know, one in two men, one in three men, uh, one in three women. Pardon me. Um, and again, statistically speaking, we there's a, there's a good chance that we will die of cancer. So if I were a patient, I would try to ask, when I was sort of sitting on the other side um, of the desk, as it were, I would try to locate myself as Stephen Jay Gould did and say, what's the likelihood that I will be one of the few people who will succeed with some kind of novel therapy um, versus the chances that I won't? Um, and once I know that, I might be able to make decisions in, uh, thoughtfully. Um, the questions that I like to ask myself is, what are the, what are the strong endpoints that I should stop treatment? I'd ask my doctor that. What are you looking for when you would say to me, you know, I think we're, we're, we're getting to the point of time that we'd better consider, seriously consider uh, hospice, um, seriously consider the withdrawal. What are those, what are those endpoints? And vice, and in the opposite sense, what are the, what are the things that, you, that, that you're looking for that would tell you this is a kind of patient that I would rather treat more aggressively, treat more uh, proactively than uh, with chemotherapy. This is not to say that hospice and, and, and palliative care are not proactive treatments. Please don't make that, uh, let's not make that mistake. But, um, but this is just to remind us that, uh, that that's, the, that's the direction that, I, that I, those, are the, those are the kinds of guidance that I'd like to know. I mean, and it could be hard science. It could be genetics. It could be uh, you know, the microenvironment, it could be the, the, the nature of the tumor. I, I'm looking for, I'm looking for, a, I'm looking for a, a, a hitchhiker's guide to Bayesian cancer. Right, right. The fact that so many people are dying of cancer and, and will continue to die from cancer is, in some perverse way, good news, because it shows that many of the diseases that killed us before we even had a chance to get cancer have been cured or at least beaten back into submission. Let's talk about the disease itself, and I'm sure there'll be other questions that could come up here relevant to the patient experience, because as you say, virtually everyone will either get cancer or have someone close to them get it. So the simplest possible question, for which no doubt there is um, no perfectly simple answer, but what is cancer? Cancer is a family of diseases that shares the common characteristic that cells uh, don't stop dividing, uh, don't know how, when, and they don't have the normal regulation that would, they would stop dividing. Sometimes cells don't know when to die, um, a combination of which leads to unfettered cellular growth. Um, often the cellular growth spreads outside the primary site um, and then continues to grow in secondary places, breast cancer growing in the bone or in the brain, um, and ultimately leading to death because of the uncontrolled, unfettered growth of cells. So a cure for cancer would be a treatment that stopped this unregulated cell growth without harming normal cells or the normal process of cell division. Is that, if there were such a thing as a generic cure, would it be described that way? That's correct. Um, it would be described as a as some way that we would be able to kill the cancer cells' growth without preventing normal cellular growth. And remember, normal cellular growth is not only responsible for growth in in the 
commonplace sense that we understand it, but also wound healing and the fact that your blood cells continue to have an immune response. All of that is related to growth. So in fact, stopping growth, even in adulthood, um, the fact that your skin can heal itself is a, is a consequence of cellular growth. So growth in adulthood continues um, and killing cancer cells growth while maintaining normal cellular growth remains a big challenge. Now, of course, as we understand cancer more deeply, um, and again, I, I've just written about this. This is why it's fresh in my mind. This is one of the things that my laboratory studies, um, which is that cancer cells grow partly because they can, uh, because the mutations, uh, genetic mutations, uh, uh, allow it, uh, allow the cells to have unfettered or unregulated growth. But it turns out that that those that unfettered, unregulated growth is also controlled not only by the cell itself, but by the environment around it. There are signals in the environment around our cells um, that tell cells when to stop growing. Um, some of them are emanate from the cells themselves, from within themselves, from within their genes. Some of them uh, emanate from things like when cells contact each other or the context in which they find themselves. So that when, when a normal wound heals, um, it, the, 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 the cells in the healing wound keep growing and growing until they reach each other and, and somehow, somehow a signal is sent so that every wound that you have doesn't become a new tumor, doesn't become a new organ, doesn't become a new hand. So cancer, in cancer, that process, not only of the, of the cell's own signals to stop growth are disrupted, but also the, the cancer cells no longer receive the signals from their environment, um, from the context, that would normally prevent or, or maintain uh, the, the, the normalcy of growth. So are we talking about multiple diseases here that are only superficially similar, or is there really a hope that there could be some generic foundational cure, that, that you find the mechanism that actually addresses malignant cell growth in principle, regardless of tumor type, regardless of the site of a metastasis? Look, look, the field oscillates between, between, between these two points. Um, the, 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 the reality is that um, there, are, there, there are absolutely some commonalities across cancers. Um, and, and in fact, there's been, a kind of, there's been a kind of popular literature saying, oh, you know, every cancer is its own disease, therefore, you know, there's no possible... That's, that idea is a reaction to the overlumping of the oversplitting of cancer is a reaction to the overlumping of cancer from a prior decade. Um, there are deep commonalities be between different cancers. There are so-called hallmarks that uh, virtually all cancers share, um, and it's important to understand that the reason that we still call this family of diseases under a single umbrella has some scientific basis. These diseases, regardless of breast cancer, lung cancer, etc brain cancer, glioblastomas, share some deep commonalities. And it's important to recognize these, you know, it's not as if we, we just throw the whole thing, uh, you know, pox on all of the, all of the uh, lumpers and that every cancer is its own thing. On the other hand, of course, we now know from deep sequencing and, and, and a deeper understanding of cancer's biology that every individual tumor has its own spectrum of mutations and they can differ quite radically from one breast cancer to another breast cancer. So we've got to be able to take both those things into, and, and, and both those things are simultaneously true. Um, there will be some commonalities. There are some commonalities that stretch across multiple cancers. Um, and there are some uniquenesses down to the level of an individual specimen of cancer. And how has the sequencing of the human genome affected the picture here? Has this radically changed our understanding of cancer? and? open the door to new treatment? Or are we still in the mode of just hoping that a clear genetic picture will, will give us some power here? The bottom line is cancer is a genetic disease. So, um, and by genetic disease, I mean the, the fundamental cause of cancer um, is genetic mutations accumulate in cells. These genetic mutations allow these cells to, as I said before, start undergoing unfettered, unregulated growth, and sometimes unregulated cell death, um, and thereby creating uh, a, a, an imbalance um, in the regulation of growth. Um, there, 
there has been no field in medicine that has been more impacted by the sequencing of genomes than cancer medicine, given what we know about cancer as a genetic disease. We, based on our understanding, the Human Genome Project created a normal template um, uh, for, uh, uh, for understanding of cancer. And against that normal template, we began to understand the mutations, the alterations in cancer cells. We have now sequenced um, tens of thousands, up to hundreds of thousands of cancers very in, in, a, in great depth, um, and begun to understand the spectra of mutations that are present in different cancers. That knowledge has allowed us to conclude several things. Number one, it has allowed us to conclude that individual specimens of cancer share some commonalities. I discussed some of them while they also have unique, uh, unique characteristics. And you can imagine this as a kind of Venn diagram. Two individual specimens of breast cancer will have some common mutations and they will have some disparate mutations. They'll have some common behaviors, they'll have some disparate or unique behaviors. So it's allowed to, us to understand that. Number two, it's allowed us to understand the evolution of cancer, how cancer cells evolve from, the, from a single cell that's mutated, acquiring more and more mutations a kind of uh, neo-Darwinian understanding of, of how cancer cells evolve in a human body over space and time. And number three, it's allowed us in, in, in cases to identify genetic pathways or genes, uh, the products of which can be targeted by medicines. So a classic example of this was a drug called Gleevec, um, which is a, really a targeted therapy for a certain kind of leukemia. There have been more examples of this. Herceptin targets the, um, the abnormal product um, of, um, of a gene, in, in mostly in breast cancer. Um, so, so the genetic revolution going all the way up to the Human Genome Project has defined not just the biology of cancer and the evolution of cancer, but has allowed us to identify targets uh, by which cancer has, can, be, can be targeted and, 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 um, and uh, killed. That said, it's also revealed some fundamental shortcomings. Um, many, the, the cancer, I'll give you the best example of in, in the cancer that I work with, uh, acute myelogenous leukemia, AML, uh, blood cancer. We've, you know, I sequence, I would say, virtually every patient that I see gets a gene sequence, some sort of genetic sequence. Many of those genes that are mutated in, these, in this form of cancer, I, I don't have a therapy for, I don't have a treatment for. So I have knowledge, but no way to treat or, or treat those cancers. Um, and that's been, that, that's, been, uh, that's been kind of uh, surprising, but also disappointing that, that gene sequencing didn't pop out immediately with uh, dozens of uh, new cancer targets that were immediately amenable to, um, to targeting using new, new medicines. Perhaps we should step back to just a, kind of a fundamental point of, of biology here, because you're, you're talking about cancer as being entirely a matter of what the genes are doing. But of course, everyone understands that there are many different ways to get cancer, or at least, at least raise your risk of getting cancer. And these are things like smoking or, or getting too much sunlight or getting exposed to various toxins or what do we know about why normal cells become malignant? How do, how do the genes that regulate cell growth become disrupted? And, and, and I guess a further question is, do we know how many oncogenes there are at this point? Is that, how much of the genome are we thinking about when we're, when we're, when we're trying to forestall this process in, in every form? Well, the, the, the first question, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a rich controversy in the field uh, of, of cancer medicine about the extent to which um, cancer-causing mutations arise because of errors in uh, cell copying, uh, copying DNA, replication, versus uh, environmental carcinogens that cause uh, mutations. So just to summarize that controversy, because it's important, um, there are two sources uh, through which um, a cancer-causing mutation could arise. One is, uh, you know, something from the environment, a, a cosmic ray, a carcinogen from tobacco smoke, enters your lung tissue, goes into the lung cells and causes, it, causes DNA damage, um, ultimately resulting through a cascade of events, ultimately resulting in a mutation. 
the other source is that uh, when a lung cell divides, um, during that cell division, like all cells, it has to make a full copy of its genome to transmit that genome to its daughter cells. But that process, that process of copying, like every copying process in biology, is error prone. And it can make a mistake. And instead of, you know, instead of copying ACTG, it should it could copy ACGG by mistake and thereby introduce a mutation. So these are two fundamentally different ways by which mutations could occur um, in, in humans. And a major question is the extent to which human cancers arise as a consequence of A versus B. Now, for some cancers, the answer is obvious. In lung cancer caused by smoking, the preponderance of mutations arise as a consequence of smoking. So there's no doubt about that. But for many other cancers, we don't know exactly the role of um, A versus B, the errors in cellular replication versus some kind of carcinogen that we haven't identified yet. You know, there's, it's, it's been a real challenge in the field, and I'm, I'm going to wade into, into some important territory here and perhaps controversial territory here. It's been a real challenge in the field to identify major human chemical carcinogens. Um, there, so clearly tobacco is a major human chemical carcinogen. But since the 1990s, the number of major human chemical carcinogens that we've identified has not been great, great in number. Viruses, yes, but those are not chemical carcinogens, they're biological carcinogens. Um, you could say obesity, absolutely, there's a link between obesity and cancer. But, you know, calling obesity a chemical carcinogen really stretches the definition. So, um, and we found lots of other things, lots of things that can cause cancer, but their impact on human populations remains still relatively modest um, in terms of epidemiological numbers. So that's why the fields, you know, there's a controversy brewing in the field, you know, back-to-back -back papers and important journals challenging each other's data uh, from extremely prominent laboratories around the world. Um, some saying, you know, we've underestimated the amount of cancer caused by cellular replication, if so, then the problem is, you know, handle the cellular replication problem. Others saying it's, you know, they're, they're secret or hidden or unknown environmental carcinogens, or maybe it's, you know, it's death by a thousand cuts. Maybe there are many, many of them, each with small impact. And this is a major controversy in the field. Is there any sense of the percentage that is due to endogenous genetic mutation versus contamination from the outside, whether, whether it's with toxin or, or a virus? Uh, so so this, this answer, I'm going to have to give you a squirrely answer to this because, first of all, it depends entirely on the cancer. So, you know, if it's lung cancer in the context of tobacco smoke, the tobacco smoke is totally preponderant. Right. Um, if it's cervical cancer, that is, you know, very, very strongly linked to a virus. Um, but, but there are cases in which we don't know exactly why. Um, and so, for instance, the, 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 the arena around breast and prostate cancer, uh, very controversial arenas. And if I would, if I would stake out a number, uh, you would get 15 phone calls tomorrow saying right. that the number was wrong. And they would be right, because we just don't know. Just to clarify, Sam, this is just an important point. I think, I mean, I, I know your, your podcast emphasizes this. Um, just because we don't know doesn't mean it's unknowable. Right. Um, it's very important. This is an incredibly consequential question, and, uh, and perhaps this is a, this goes back to the conversation we had around genetics and and intelligence and Charles Murray. These are questions that we we have to have a clear-eyed answer to. Uh, there's a there should be some there there should be some scientific clarity because it's consequential. If it turns out that in breast cancer. The, the cellular replication plays an important role, that leads to important policy implications. We cannot turn our eyes away from it because that, and, and say, gosh, you know, I wish it was not the case. I wish there was a carcinogen that I could eliminate from the environment that would dramatically decrease the rate of breast cancer in women. I wish that was the case. Absolutely, I wish that was the case. But if we don't find it, then we can't turn our eyes away from it and say, that's not the reality. And the related part of my question about the oncogenes themselves, do we know how many genes we're talking about that regulate cell division and, and can be... Well, there are hundreds. And they really, 
they, they, classically, they used to come in two flavors, uh, the so-called oncogenes and tumor suppressor genes. Oncogenes can be imagined as um, accelerators in a car. So when you have an accelerator, if you jam the accelerator by a mutation, the car can't stop moving. The tumor suppressors are counteract this. They were, they're considered like the brakes in the car, in the cellular car. And when you snap the brakes, then you can't stop the car. So oncogenes and the tumor suppressors were the two classical examples of genes. Now there are more. Um, there are genes that are thought to be uh, genes that create um, that that um, create the 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 a platform or an in a cellular environment which encourages mutation. So they are they are sort of uh, mutator genes, the, and they they are an even more fascinating category called the landscaper genes. These are genes that allow cells to change or the interaction with their environment such that their cancerous behavior can become more easily manifest. So there are a variety of classes of genes, and we are now talking about really hundreds of genes strewn across the human genome. And are these, I believe you wrote about this dynamic in your recent New Yorker piece that seemed to describe a, a, a slightly different logic of metastasis. So it used to be thought that the problem is simply that the cancer cell is moving from the site of the primary tumor and going elsewhere. But now you're describing that the soil it lands in is just as relevant as the seed that is landing. What do we know about the relationship between the site of primary tumors and where metastasis is likely to happen if, in fact, it happens? Are there, is there a privileged route from a primary lung cancer to somewhere else or, or a primary liver cancer to somewhere else? I mean, I think you say in your, in your article that, you know, if they're going to get bone cancer, it's, it's rare to see a bone cancer of the hand, and this is probably not an accident. What do we know about the, the, the spread of cancer in the body? It's very unusual to see metastases, for instance, in Bone metastases happen in bone, but some bones are spared while, while other bones are not spared. Um, and it's a, actually still don't know why. It has to do, so for, for the longest time, we used to think that, uh, you know, rare cells escape the primary tumor. And those rare cells, once they arrive at their destination sites, um, uh, they sprout like seeds and take off. And that's what causes metastases. We now know that it's absolutely true that the process by which cells leave the tumor is important. And there's incredibly important work done um, by people like Robert Weinberg and, at MIT and others that have tried to understand what makes, what allows, what enables, when you have a breast tumor, what enables some, some cells to leave that breast tumor and go into the circulation. But that's not enough, and that's the point that, that I try to emphasize. This is actually something we work on in the laboratory. We've written papers about this. But what we, what we, what we now know is that just because, in fact, when cells leave the primary tumor, they perish in vast numbers. They, vast numbers of those cells, once they enter the circulation, will, will, will be killed either by immune system or by other. And they have to have specific protective mechanisms to escape that killing. And even when they arrive in their destination organs, even when they arrive in the destination organs, there are predators in the destination organs, immune cells that are watching out and, 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 um, and, 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 and removing these, these tumor cells. That's what probably makes metastasis a relatively rare event. That's why even though hundreds of thousands of cells could be leaving a primary tumor, only a few can, are capable of causing metastasis. And finally, we know that the capacity of a cell to sprout in a, in, its, in a foreign site when a breast cancer goes to the bone is not a coincidence. It is only by creating a kind of malignant alliance with the, cell, the cells that are already in that site, the, the normal cells in the site, the bone cells, can a breast cancer begin to grow in the bone. And to some extent, if we could, if we could interrupt those alliances between the cells, we would interrupt the most deadly aspects of cancer, which is metastasis. Now, note what I'm saying. It's an important point, which is we just said, if only we could interrupt the process of cell division uh, in cancer cells versus normal cells, we would achieve significant successes in cancer. And yet, 
an hour later, we're also saying, if only we could interrupt the alliances between cells that form metastases and their soil, we could achieve significant successes in cancer. We've switched, um, importantly, we've uh, begun to consider, we haven't switched focuses. Of course, the genes are important. It's, of course, it's important to stop cancer cells from dividing, but it's equally important to think about the soil or the context in which those cancer cells learn to grow. And some organs receive more than their fair share of metastases, right? So it's like the, the right. liver is... explained. it cannot be explained by the circulation. So it's not as if, you know, there's, there, there is the spleen and the liver are equally bathed in blood. They equally have strong supplies of blood. And yet the liver is a disproportional site of metastasis. Why? The answer is in 2017. This observation was made in 1860. In 2017, we still basically don't know why. We want to make our livers more like our spleens. We want to make our livers more like our spleens. Again, we need to find out what are the alliances that are being cultivated by a cell, by a breast cell. Interestingly, some cancers, some individual types of cancer, don't metastasize to the liver. They're unlikely to be found in the liver. So it really is, there's some, again, this goes back to the point, there's some commonalities here and some differences that we need to understand. So is the picture one of us always getting cancer at some level and it never becoming truly pathological until it does? Is that, is that the picture of an immune system that is basically always dealing with cancer from perhaps a very early point in life? Or is that too simplistic an idea? That was not the picture 10 years ago. Uh, that is one aspect of the picture today, which is to say that, that we, we, we're now reconsidering the idea of the extent to which primary tumors, and the immune system is only one part of the story, we're reconsidering the idea, whether primary tumors or metastatic tumors, we're reconsidering the idea to, which, to what extent do these cells need to form alliances with normal cells, with normal tissue, in order to become cancers? To what extent does immune predation stop cancers? The old paradigm used to come from, um, just, just, to give you, just to give you one example, if, if you take patients such as HIV, uh, patients who have AIDS, um, they, they, don't, they have a rather limited spectrum of cancers that arise as a consequence of their immune depletion or their, uh, or their, or their, or their, of their immune collapse. So we know what they are. There are certain lymphomas, certain sarcomas like Kaposi's sarcoma, um, and certain other cancers. But other cancers don't seem to uh, sprout up in these people who have profoundly depressed immune systems. And for a while, that led us to believe that the immune surveillance it only operates on certain kinds of cancer, viral cancers. You know, cervical cancer is another example. And we thought that the viral cancers, unsurprisingly, were the ones that are most likely suppressed by immune system because, of course, viruses are recognized by the immune system. But now we're revisiting that idea and asking whether we had missed some fundamental feature of the immune system, parts of the immune system that are less affected um, by uh, some of these immunological diseases that may still play a vital role in suppressing uh, tumors in, in, in human beings. There's a concept of the war on cancer that I don't know when this was first initiated in the U.S. It might have been Lyndon Johnson, but we've, we've all had this experience of seeing a succession of U.S. presidents stand up and announce something bold and hopeful about the, the way in which the resources we put toward this disease will bear fruit in some reasonable time frame. And uh, there's been this, I think, uh, probably no president has, has declined this privilege. But in hindsight, it's obviously very poignant to see the confidence and, and even bluster you know, for the, this particular moonshot. And yet, from the, the side of those who are dying from cancer and have died from cancer and their families, it seems like the moon is still quite far away. How is the war on cancer going? Is, and what's the likelihood that the current decade is going to look as bleak as some of the previous ones, in your view? The, 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 you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a mixed report. It's hard to give uh, grades, but it's a mixed report, as you can imagine. I think we're doing an important kind of experiment in cancer today, which we weren't doing before. Um, and the experiment has two or three phases. Um, we now know, generally speaking, that 
um, detecting cancer early helps um, when the number of when the tumor burden, the total number of cells, is at its minimal. That statement it will itself generate a flare of controversy. Uh, so I should I should modify it somewhat. We now know that early detection of cancers, when we are correctly detecting cancers, uh, when we are indeed detecting cancer, um, helps. Uh, just just to give you one counterexample, um, you know you can detect thyroid cancer early. But, but a vast majority of these thyroid cancers are not likely to become pathological. So they don't cause disease. They look like cancer under a microscope, but they don't cause disease. And this, is, this was a huge problem um, in, in South Korea, for instance, and I've written about it, that in the past. So the correct deployment of early detection helps. Um, so that's point number one. The second thing is that once it's detected early, we now know that the, the deployment of of targeted therapy and possibly immunological therapy helps. So the second piece is that that uh, we're learning to take the earliest, the early detected cancers, and apply therapies to them that are specific for that kind of cancer. And to give some examples, Herceptin as a drug for an um, an early detected HER2 positive cancer. Um, and there, there are many other examples of this. Which is not just breast cancer. There are, there are other HER2 cancers. I, it's still mainly breast cancer that, is, that, that, is, that, that the HER2, uh, that Herceptin is mostly uh, successful in. There are other cancers that overexpress HER2. Um, you know, they tend to be very harder to treat with Herceptin. It's really breast cancer where the Herceptin. But we're not talking about small numbers. So, you know, breast cancer, significant advances in breast cancer with Herceptin. And then, and then, and then the third phase is to continue main, maintain and monitoring uh, patients, um, even after their cancer has disappeared from their body, visibly disappeared from their body, to catch or detect uh, cancers as early as possible in their recurrence or in their uh, or, or or in the relapse, um, or more importantly, if new cancers arise. So, so. This is a kind of, I've called this, I gave a talk at the clinical oncology meeting recently. This is a kind of a, a bold, a, a kind of new experiment. We're in the middle of, of a bold experiment in cancer. I hope it works in, in the right direction. There are signs that it would, it would um, but I, I think it would, be, it would be an overstatement to say that we've, we've solved this piece. Well, I'm mindful of your time, Siddhartha, at this point. I think I just have Two more questions from a patient-centered point of view. I'm especially mindful of the fact that every moment you spend talking to me, you're not in your lab curing cancer. So I hope our listeners don't hold that against me. A fundamental question of terminology here. What is the difference between remission and cure in your line of work? Um, it's a very important difference. In fact, the, the world of cancer was was one of the first to recognize the differences between uh, between these two words. A remission is when you don't. I mean, it's put very simply. There are technical definitions. A remission is when you don't have any visible sign of cancer in your body. Um, uh, a cure is when you don't have cancer. Uh, that's you don't have cancer. Period. Um, you have been. You've removed the possibility of relapsing. Or dying from that cancer. Breast cancer is another great example of this. Um, we now know that you can relapse with breast cancer 10 years, even 20 years after you've been in a remission from your original breast cancer, 20 years. Um, we know that it's, in, in many cases, we know it's the same breast cancer because of gene sequencing, because you can sequence the genes and it cannot be a coincidence that the same mutations it's not a new cancer because the same mutations were found in the, in the cancer that arose 10 years afterwards, um, which means that those cells must have been living in some kind of dormant state, invisible dormant state, not causing metastatic relapse in those intervening 10 odd years, which in turn means why, which in turn begs the question, why? Why were those cells and how were those cells sitting dormant? And could we avoid that? Could we reactivate the immune system somehow? Could we change the soil somehow to make those cells um, less uh, able to come back to life. Um, so so those, are the, those are the fundamental differences. In, in, in some cancers like leukemia, childhood leukemia, we know that there's been cure because those children have lived out their full lives up to 60, 70 years uh, without never, with never having a recurrence of the original cancer. 
But even in those cases, do you still talk in terms of remission? I mean, did, is there a, a treatment paradigm where the oncologist will say, we believe you have been cured of your cancer? Or is it always like the breast cancer where a, a remission of the original cancer is still conceivable? It depends on the cancer. So again, surgical treatment is extraordinarily effective in cancer, some cancers, solid cancers. If you have a lung cancer, you remove the lung cancer and the patient does not have early signs of metastasis. We follow these patients. Um, but over time, you get more and more confident that the lung cancer is not likely to come back and um, they're declared cured, cured at some point of time. Now, are there some patients who will relapse with lung cancer years later? Yes. But in breast cancer in particular, it's been, a, it's been, it's been particularly noticed in breast cancer. We don't hesitate to use the word cure when you actually have strong evidence for, the, for cure. And there are patients who are cured of cancer. Um, as I said, surgical treatment for early localized cancer can be curative. But there are examples, and it depends on the cancer, that you, know, you remove the primary tumor with, through surgery, you give the person chemotherapy to prevent any remnant pieces of, or bits of cancer left over, and 10 years later, they relapse uh, from breast cancer. So finally, Siddhartha, this is a question that strikes me as, as especially relevant to people going through treatment. And when, when they see what's on the menu, and what, what's on the menu is often a fairly toxic form of chemotherapy, or if, if standard protocols haven't worked, they're given some experimental trial, which also can be quite toxic, even more toxic than, than the standard approach. Historically, much of of what has been offered in the form of treatment has looked nearly pointless to people. And the trade-off between trying to extend their lives under, again, under a condition of some impressive uncertainty as to how much more life will be won, and the quality of life concerns. I mean, do you want to spend your remaining time toxified by the, the treatment? It becomes a very difficult gamble. And it's Again, from the, the layperson side, it seems very hard to think about, and especially so when, when you're when as a parent thinking about the experience of his or her child. Do you have any wisdom to share about how one thinks about this? I guess you could you could divide your answer in terms of kind of standard protocols and the costs and benefits of going into something that's truly experimental. Well, I mean, you know, we generally experimental protocols go through an evolution themselves they begin their lives as alternatives to standard protocols only when a patient has not had the expected response to the standard protocol so that's where they that's where they begin then they enter a second life when they're being compared sort of head to head against the standard protocol and finally they have another life when they become the 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 preferred or the first uh, line of treatment um, in contrast to the standard protocol. And that's, there's, a, there's a, system, a systematic way in which they're judged. Um, so obviously, as, as, as someone who runs trials, you're sensitive to this progression. You don't want to put patients on experimental protocols when standard protocols are extremely likely to work. And you don't want, I mean, you know, remember, remember first do no harm. It remains, even in this new age of medicine, first do no harm, is that it remains an important mantra. Uh, you know, I often say medicine is the only discipline where the, where the central oath is in the negative. Our, our, our first job is to do no harm because the, because the capacity for harm is so great. Um, so so, so I, th I think generally I advise people to, to be mindful of this progression. Um, when the when the prospects for standard therapy are extraordinarily bleak based on statistical circumstances, again I go back to this idea of Stephen Gould and say, well, where do you lie? Where do you sit? Are you likely to benefit from 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 a non-standard therapy? And if you're likely to benefit, we should try it with the understanding that we have to be. If if it was if we weren't if we if we, if we didn't have equipoise about the capacity of that therapy to succeed, we wouldn't be trying it. Uh, we would be we would go go in for it without with with blinders on. So uh, rather than rather than doing that, I generally you know uh, be uh, mindful of this progression. I remind patients and myself of this progression. And finally, how do you think about in an experimental protocol the ethics of putting half the patients on a placebo control, and and what happens when 
you begin to get data that suggests that the, the treatment is actually effective. Do people break protocols with some regularity and start giving the, the Herceptin, say, when it was being studied to everybody in, in, the, in the study? Or how does that work? It's a, it's an, it's a thorny debate. Um, we've become a little bit more accepting of, of crossover protocols in which you can cross over from one arm to the other arm later. Um, but, you know, ultimately, the, the purpose of randomization is to seal ourselves from our own biases. The, the purpose of randomization is to remind doctors that it's, it's, it's not because we are malignant people. It's because we're so hopeful and because patients are so hopeful. We want badly these treatments to succeed. And that we imagine, therefore, we, 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 are, we are drawn to solutions. And the purpose of randomization is to remind us of the purity that, that if you really randomize, you would come out with a result that was successful. Now, over time, we have learned to relax those rules somewhat, but they will never fully be relaxed. And by relax, I mean we've, we've created mechanisms by which trials can be stopped early. Um, even that has some dangers. So imagine instead of using survival as your endpoint, you're using some surrogate, like you know, some tumor marker goes down, or the breast cancer cells disappear; they become smaller, the tumor shrinks. You could make a strong argument that okay, maybe the tumor shrunk a little bit, but it ultimately makes no difference. The patients are likely to die just as much. We have been burnt by this in recent times. The use of surrogates. So, as a field. Oncologists are very, very mindful and remain mindful of that. Are there is there pressure because of hope to to be able to run trials faster? Absolutely, but but there is there there is a constant thorny conflict about what the appropriate endpoints are, and it remains open to discussion. Well, once again, Siddhartha, it's been a fantastic education talking to you, and uh, I just want to encourage you to keep firing on all cylinders because you have a really beautiful career. You're a fantastic writer. You write big, comprehensive, uh, and extremely readable books. You write great articles. You spawn documentaries. And in addition to all of that, you are a doctor and a bench scientist. So you, I don't know what, where you get your extra hours in the day, but it's, it's really wonderful to behold. Uh, my pleasure. I'm a big fan of the podcast, so keep, keep that work up. Thank you so much. If you find this podcast valuable, there are many ways you can support it. You can review it on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you happen to listen to it. You can share it on social media with your friends. You can blog about it or discuss it on your own podcast. Or you can support it directly. And you can do this by subscribing through my website at samharris.org. And there you'll find subscriber-only content which includes my Ask Me Anything episodes. You also get access to advanced tickets to my live events, as well as streaming video of some of these events. And you also get to hear the bonus questions from many of these interviews. All of these things and more you'll find on my website at samharris.org. Thank you for your support of the show. It's listeners like you that make all of this possible.